Hey, everybody. Welcome to Relish This, the nonprofit marketing podcast. I'm your host, Stu Swineford. I'm one of the co-founders of Relish Studio. We're a digital marketing agency committed to helping nonprofits thrive. My guest today is Dan Smink. He is also a digital marketer. He works or is the founder of C1 Partners, and they're a Denver-based uh, firm that does some really great work in um in digital marketing of, of all types. He's also served on a bunch of nonprofit boards and has done some really cool things. I think you're really going to enjoy the show. Some good tips on, uh, on, on marketing in general, um, and particularly how nonprofits can kind of change their mindset to, uh, to consider marketing an investment as opposed to a, a spend. And, um, here we go. I hope you enjoy the show. So Dan, how are you today? I am well. Considering everything going on, yeah. So. Thanks for being on the show. I'm really excited to hear what you guys are up to at um, at C1. Um, mm-hmm. You're the founder of C1 Partners, and I know you guys do a lot of the same stuff that we do in terms of digital marketing and things like that. Mm-hmm. But you you have a, a a particular specialty that I was really interested in seeing if we could get your your uh, viewpoint toward the nonprofit space about. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pay-per-click advertising and SEO and, and things of that nature, because I mm-hmm. think that that's a big challenge for a lot of nonprofits. They just don't really know where to turn. And um, yeah. so, you know, let's tee this up by, you know, let's, I'd love to hear your story, how you, how you made it to, to be an entrepreneur and, and started C1 and, and all that stuff. And then we can, you know, get into some specifics about, about things that, that would help nonprofits out. Yeah. So, uh, so I, um, I started my career actually as a middle school teacher, um, which I consider often to be my first marketing degree <laughs> because um, uh, middle school students will give you immediate feedback if they don't like what they're hearing. And um, so if your messaging is not on point, uh, you get um, a very clear response. Um, but, um, and, and I say that in all honesty, like I had to learn how to be succinct and I had to learn how to make my messaging resonate with them. Um, and I had to learn how to shift gears if it wasn't. And that is very applicable to what we do today, you know, with our clients and what I've done in my career. Um, you know, after I did that, I went to graduate school for business and, uh, got out of business school and did strategy and marketing and product management for medical device companies. Uh, here in Colorado for about 12 years. Uh, and in that role, my job was really to build a business within a business. So I would be the one in charge of, um, you know, like 50% of the revenue for a certain suite of products. And I had to work with sales and uh, marketing communications and operations and R&D um, to, to drive the business, to make it more cost efficient and to make it drive more revenue and to you know, look at how we're going to expand the business. We had to think strategically. So are we going to acquire new technologies? Are we going to acquire new product platforms? Are we going to sell what we have? So, um, you know, when I think of my life today as an entrepreneur, I was really learning how to do it when I started doing that, where I was running businesses within businesses. And I was thinking as if I was the business owner, I just, you know, I wasn't going to like, I might lose my job, but I wouldn't like lose my livelihood completely if um you know if something i my baby that i built if something didn't go right. right so there's a bit of a safety net um but then in addition to that when i was in my uh early 30s um, uh, a mentor counseled me to uh, look for opportunities to serve on boards where uh, of nonprofits okay. as a way of growing my work experience right. time i didn't have kids and um uh, and so, you know, there was some room in my, um, in my life to, to do this sort of thing. And, um, and I also wanted to get engaged in my community. The Denver was the first place that I really wanted to settle down. And, um, I felt like I wanted to make an investment in the place that I lived and through, um, a contact that we had, um, for a family at, uh, in Wellington Webb's office, um, uh, he nominated me to be on the board of a place called the Mental Health Centers of Denver. Okay. And I, um, over eight years, became eventually became the chairman of the board. So I, like I did the finance committee. I did, um, I, managed, I was chairman of a subsidiary. Uh, it's not a small organization. At the time, right, it was about right. $25 million in revenue. 
Okay. Um, and um, I had experience with healthcare. And, um, you know, if, I, I believe that if you want to get involved in your community, um, there are things that, you know, you, you can really get in up to your elbows by doing something related to the safety net or the infrastructure, whether it's education or youth or, you know, healthcare, all these sort of big sort of cross community sort of issues that are going to affect everyone. And especially the weakest among us, the people that are most in need. Right. So this was a really great opportunity to do that. And it was more than I even realized at the time I came to understand over the, over time that, um, mental illness and physical illness have about the same cost impact uh, in the United States. Um, each one of them does. It's a pretty equivalent. The only problem is we don't fund mental illness. Right. We fund physical illness through healthcare and insur- health insurance right. and Medicare, Medicaid. We don't do that. So we don't pay for it. And so we, we do still pay for it, but the way that we pay for it is through incarceration and um, police fo- policing and um, uh, things like that. Right, because right. 70% of the homeless population has a significant mental illness. 70% of the, um, of the prison population has a significant mental illness. So we're treating mental illness. We're just treating it with a prison. Right. Or we're not treating it. Um, and we are paying for it by cleaning up after homeless populations or funding soup kitchens. Right. That makes sense. So we do pay yeah, for the, it. We just the don't, whole, uh, don't treat it yeah, humanely. So like put in the hospital at the bottom of the river uh, analogy. Yeah. When you have all these bodies floating down, and you just stick yeah. <laughs> stick the hospital at the bottom instead yeah. of going up and figuring out how to fix the the problem. Mm-hmm. And the, the irritating part to me, um, as a business person is the people that espouse fiscal conservatism, right? Mm-hmm. It's cheaper to, to take care of that by funding it upstream than it is to, to pay for it downstream. Right. Because when you pay for it downstream, then you got to pay for the, the victims of crime. You mm-hmm. know, you're not only paying for the criminal, you're paying for, the, for, the, for their victims, right? Because yeah. you didn't take care of the person with the mental illness who then perpetrated a crime. That's a yeah. very simplistic example. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's actually much more cost effective to do what um, a lot of people view as uh, fiscally liberal. It's actually fiscally conservative to fund upstream treatment of mental illness. Right. So, um, so anyway, uh, so I did that. And it was another situation where I, the business was failing when I joined it. It was going to go out. It was, gonna, it was not, it was cash flow negative at the time. The operations were not cash flow positive. Okay. Um, and it was going to run out of cash in 18 months. And um, I stepped in as the um, finance chair and um, I put them on an austerity program. Okay. Uh, I was a, the role that I had in the businesses that I work at. If I didn't hit my number, I was out of a job. Right. So I put them, you know, I, I became very strict about performing to budget and we restricted their budget significantly such that they, you know, were going to be they were at least going to make, they were going to break even and we weren't going to die. (laughs) And um, we turned them around and then we increased, we created increasing um, uh, budgets so that they were producing a 1% net income and a 2% net income and a 3% net income. Okay. um, And got them back on track. Uh, At the time we were actually selling buildings. By the time I left, we were buying buildings. Um, But so it was about 25 million and declining. When I left eight years later, it was at 55 million and growing. I turned it into an um, innovation organization. Oh, that's it actually great. became a consulting firm. We developed, in addition to the, so we provided, we, we uh, coordinated the funding and provided the services for the poor and the mental, uh, for the poor and the indigent, the city and county of Denver for mental illness. So the wow. worst of the worst. Yeah, that's great. Kinds of cases. Right. You know, schizophrenia, bipolar. Not your everyday sort of bluesy, you know, melancholy, but like, you know, significant mental illness that really disrupts family. So, um, uh, but then in addition to that, I, uh, I totally turned over the board. I brought in a uh, former CEO of Janus Capital. I brought in some heavy hitters from the Hickenlooper when he was a mayor of mm-hmm. his administration. Mm-hmm. Brought in some big consultants, some business people that owned, you know, that had not small businesses, medium-sized businesses. 
you know, 50 to hundred million in revenue. Right. Um, people that knew how to run a business because the people that were on, they were very well intentioned before that, but they were caregivers and parents, patients, not business people. Right. And, um, and so these people could really advise the CEO. We also hired a CEO and put a really great CEO in place. It's now over a hundred million in revenue. Oh, that's great. So what, what are the mechanisms by which you, you flip that switch in terms of, of going from this, this negative, uh, you know, decline, Mm -hmm. Um, obviously you cut, cut some costs, which right. certainly is a, is an immediate, uh, you know, turn the, turn the faucet off first. Right. Um, yeah. but, but then you, you know, you flipped that where, where you looking for, you know, is this, was this all government funded? Was it donations? What, what was the mechanism? So the, so the interesting issue is tied to Colorado politics and Tabor. Mm-hmm. They were 99% dependent on Medicaid as a funding source. And so if something happened in the economy and the funding went down, Tabor ratchets it down and they can't, and it can't come back, even though the demand is there. Right. So your funding has to go down because Tabor takes it down. Okay. That makes sense. Yes, for sure. Get rid of Tabor. Like if, if we take anything out of this conversation, get rid of Tabor. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you on that. (laughs) It is such a problem for the safety net, whether it's mental illness, healthcare, so many things suffer. The people, the, the weakest of our community suffer. Right. Anytime there's an economic downturn because of Tabor. So um, because we were completely dependent on Medicaid in the 2002 um, uh, economic downturn and the, when the tech bubble burst in 2001, 2002, mm-hmm. um, we had to cut 10% of the workforce. So we had a, right. a force workforce reduction of 10%. And we had to cut loose, I think, thousand clients or some, some enormous number of clients. Oh, wow. And where did they go? On we the already street, talked about right? it. Yeah. They went back under the bridges yeah. and they went back into the prison system. Right. So we still paid for them, but they were now, you know, they weren't getting care for the right way. Right. So I said to the CEO, this is the biggest risk to the business is the funding for Medicaid. So what we need to do is we need to figure out other funding sources besides Medicaid. So what we did was um, I, uh, I had turned over the board at this time um, and brought in some of these really great people. And, um, and I will say, if there's one thing I'm really proud of, um, this has been 12, 15 years. The, the subsequent chairmen of the board have all been people that I brought on 15 years ago. There have been three wow. chairmen of the board since I left. They're awesome. all my... People I brought in. Yeah. I was really, you know, that if there's one, cause it, it, it goes to when you're a leader, your first job really is HR. It's building the team and you need to bring in really good people and people that hopefully have high ceilings. And so it's been really, you know, to me, it's always really cool that these people are still the ones that I brought on 15 years ago. That's so great. anyway, um, but w- what we did was we charged the management team and we said, we want three new business lines and the restrictions are they can't be funded by Medicaid and they have to be cash flow positive within 12 months. We don't have the cash or the resources to get money where we can wait for them to be cash flow positive. Right, like right. they're either going to be cash flow positive in the year or we're going to cut them. So figure it out and come to us with three ideas and we will pick which one is a board we're going to support. We did that three years in a row. First thing they did was they became a pharmacy. Okay. They became the source of, they became the pharmaceuticals. They became the source of, of pharmaceuticals for all mental health drugs oh, in the wow. city of Denver. Okay. Um, they became a consulting firm. So the the programs are great. The Mental Health Center of Denver is one of the most cutting edge one of the most cutting edge community mental health programs in the country. Mm-hmm. And so they actually became a consultant to um, other community mental health programs around the country. And the last thing they did was they developed a for profit service line that treated people with health insurance. Okay. So, you know, United, Anthem, whatever it was, you know, their mental health services, they went to um, MHCD's providers, which was a big deal because MHCD is the res. Like if you're a psychiatrist mm-hmm. um, uh, in Colorado and you want to do training, you want to do it with the mental health centers of Denver because it's the worst of the worst. You see right. everything and you learn you know, you're, you come out of that and you can handle almost anything. 
And so their clinicians are as good as they, as they get. So we provided, so we basically provided a Mercedes product. That's great. So these three things added together, you know, became um, the way that the company uh, grew. So the interesting thing was in the 2008, 2010 timeframe, Mm-hmm. Where we again had the you know the uh, real estate bubble burst. Yeah. Um, in that downturn, Tabor went down again. Right. The beautiful part of that moment for MHCD was they didn't have to cut any staff, and they didn't have to cut loose any clients. They broke even. I mean, they were right. squeaking by by the skin of their teeth. Right. But they survived. And they didn't have to cut anybody. Nobody went back under the ridges. Nobody went back into the prisons. And nobody lost their job. That's a fantastic story. That was, yeah, that was success of, you know, that proved the plan worked. So I did that. Then um, I was asked to come and uh, be the head of what at the time was the, um, the youth soccer program for the city. Of, uh, it was a combined youth soccer program for the um, Denver and Aurora. Okay. The Denver Soccer Club and the Aurora Soccer Club. And um, uh, so I went and I was uh, the chairman of the board of that, what was then called the Colorado Fusion. Um, And we were one of the smaller clubs in the state. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you know about youth sports or your your listeners know about youth sports, but um, let's just say that youth sports are really screwed up, frankly. And it's because of the adults. Um, it seems to be about the adults' egos and not about the kids having fun. Right. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's very interesting when you look at youth participation rates, they're much lower than they were a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because of this emphasis on winning and getting a college scholarship or like, you know, I can brag to my friends about my, how wonderful my kid is. And I don't know. Anyway, but youth sports are screwed up and it's the adults that are the problem. So, um, we came into this and, um, I have two kids that were playing in the club. Um, and, uh, um, we set about changing that. And the goal was to be an example for how youth sports should be in America. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the metric I used was, um, we want to aspire to be so such a, um, an appeal that Michelle Obama would actually come out and, um, you know, and recognize us as a, cause she was doing this whole, you know, be active sort of campaign. I don't know if you right. remember that when, yep, she I do. Was, when they were yeah. um, and that was, our, we never achieved it, but that was sort of our goal. We set this sort of goal of, um, uh, the, um, you know, that would be a sign of success, right? Right. We had other signs of success too. Um, the metric that we used, for coaches that we evaluated coaches had nothing to do with wins and losses. It had to do with how many kids signed up to play next year. Okay. So it was retention. That's all that mattered to us was participation. That's That's great. Right. So, um, I came in, there was, um, it was 800,000 roughly in revenue. They had no strategy. They had no budget cycle. They had nothing. They didn't know how to run a business. Came in, hired a new CEO, um, and set about straightening things out. Um, the, um, I was there for three years, three or four years in that time frame. So there's the press professional club called the Colorado Rapids, right. right? Which I don't know if you're aware of, People I may not be aware. but they had a youth program. Okay. And they were very good at, um, training. And one of the issues that we had was that there was no consistency in the experience that the, that the kid would have. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was very irritating to me as a business person. Right. I, I believe in consistent, consistent, high quality product. And, um, if you are, you could have three families, right. Mm-hmm. And there are three different coaches at a certain age level. And each kid has a different experience. One like does drills every time. Another kid like runs around all the time. And the other one like just plays games. There's nothing about development. There's nothing about, um, consistency so that the kid is getting what's appropriate for the age mm-hmm. and appropriate for the level of skill set. Um, and, and there's no consistency in the product. So the great thing about the Rapids was they had a curriculum that went from age four to age 18, actually okay. beyond 18, like 2022. Um, 
and uh, they were struggling financially. They were mm-hmm. there. They, they had a good program, but they didn't know how to run it. Right. Right. And so long story short, we buddied up to them. And at a moment of weakness, we stepped in and said, we'll take over your program, but we want the right to license your brand. Okay. So we absorbed their program. We were growing, but then we absorbed their program and we grew, we almost like doubled right. in overnight. Um, and, um, uh, and licensed the brand. And we've now had the right to um, uh, be um, run the Colorado Rapids Youth Soccer Club statewide. Okay. So we could go to Grand Junction and open up a, a, a you know, another branch of right. our program. We weren't right. just limited to Denver and Aurora. We could now go statewide with this. And the issue, the issue was back to what I was saying before about how youth sports are screwed up. There were big clubs in the state, and um, uh, they were more about money and winning titles than they were about youth development. And as an example of what I mean. So Colorado, so soccer is played at, you know, traditionally it's understood to be played as 11 versus 11. Yes. Okay. But the interesting thing is when you're younger, the, the best, uh, that field is too big for a, for a child. Right. And two, um, it, it's not good for the development of the kid. The best opportunities for development of the child are when they're smaller size. So it's like four against four, six against six or eight against eight. Right. Right. The best nations in the world at 18 don't play 11 against 11. They play 9v9 oh, interesting. in their national tournaments at, at age 18 yeah. in high school. Yeah. Right. We're playing 11v11 at like age six. Yeah. Right. And it's just a simple ratio. One ball, 22 kids, you know, 40 minutes. How many, and you know, there's how many touches in 40 minutes you got to divide by 22. Right. Whereas if it's one ball, eight kids, 40 minutes, you take however many of those touches and divide by eight. All those kids get to touch the ball that much more often. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing was, so those, those clubs would, um, uh, play a ton of games. They go to tournaments, right. It was really expensive, right. Mm -hmm. Because, and they would travel and, and the parents would get charged so that the coaches would get paid more. Right. I'd heard of, I knew of people who, you know, when the kids were like, 14, 13, you know, years old, mm-hmm. parents paying five to $10,000 a year to play in one of these clubs. Right. right. Well, Jason doesn't get to play when that's the case. Yeah. The, the Lower kids, income yeah. people. Yeah. Right. Yep. It's only the wealthy that get to play in that situation, which to me is just patently unfair. Okay. Um, and so um, the, uh, the Rapids had a rule that for every hour of playing time, you had to practice for three hours. Okay. Which, you know, you get better in practice. You don't get better in games. Right, right. Plus, if you, if you set that rule, guess what you don't do? You don't play as many games. You can't travel as much. The price goes down. Right. So the kids get better. The price goes down. Who suffers in the situation? It's the adults that suffer in the situation because <laughs> right. they don't get, the coaches don't get, they don't make more money, right? The administrators don't, don't make more money. Like, I hate to break it to you, but like, but it's not about you, right. adult. Right. It's about the child. Right. So the kids are getting better and it's, and more kids can do it. Right. But what, um, in the same scenario as what I did with the other organization, I brought in really good business people mm-hmm. onto the board. Right. And I got rid of some dead weight. Um, so people that I brought on, they're actually, there are no, this one is not the case where they've been replaced by people that I had brought or other people, but um, they've had some really great um, business leaders running the club. We learned in the process, never let a soccer player, never let a soccer guy or woman run the club. No, I'm not kidding. We, we actually went and we hired um, nonprofit managers uh-huh. and school uh, leaders, like former school directors. Yeah. Okay. So superintendents, mm-hmm. right. People who knew how to run schools, people who knew how to run nonprofits. The other clubs in the state would let soccer guys run them and they right. didn't run them well. And what happened was the biggest, about six years later, the biggest club in the state was in a deep financial holding, almost a million bucks. Oh, wow. And we stepped in and bought them. Okay. And the Rapids are now 
the largest club in the state. And now, because of the power that they hold, uh -huh. we play smaller-sided games. Oh, that's great. And it's, yeah. So we, we were able to turn the, turn the tables and make it about the kid um, and let those kinds of principles drive why, you know, how we're playing and how, we're, you know, how things are handled, not, um, you know, what makes adults feel good about themselves. Gotcha. Um, and so, and it's now a $14 million company, not an $800,000 company. Wow, so, that's great. you know, the changes we put in place, um, uh, again, saw significant growth. Um, I've done other stuff. I was, I was nominated by Hancock to be on a, um, on the parks and recreation board. Um, I was on the board of a, um, charter school in uh, Montbello. Okay. Um, so I've done a bunch of nonprofit work, but in this process of, you know, one, I was doing businesses inside of companies. Mm -hmm. I was helping build these other businesses, these nonprofits and straighten them out. I learned a lot about running businesses. And so I wanted to do one on my own. So about 10 years ago, I started my own company. Oh, that's awesome. I uh, built it for about two years. wasn't going the direction I wanted, so I sold out to my partners, and then I started the company that I have now, C1 Partners. Gotcha. I started that nine years ago. Okay. And that's how I got to where I'm at today. That's, that's great. I, I, I really like the idea of figuring out ways to, to create businesses within within an organization. Um, so you have your umbrella business, but then you just create these little pillars within that. And I think that a lot of nonprofits tend to... You know, they're, they're so focused on the big, the big thing that they do that they miss these opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a nonprofit in, um, they're up kind of up by Longmont. And, um, one of the things that they did, my, my wife used to be, uh, on their board and, and work, work with them. Um, but one of the things that they did was they recognized an opportunity to kind of create a, a thrift store underneath, mm -hmm. you know, within this, this pillar. And so they would, they would have people. Yeah, they would have people donate. They were seeing people donating yeah. a lot of things that they couldn't use. And so they just started mm -hmm. selling those things. And then they had a, a retail uh, space and they were yeah. just driving, you know, they were driving engagement and, and awareness as well as, yeah. as revenue just through this. New and suddenly they have, they, they have, more, yeah, and they have more revenue that they can provide service with. I mean, so the interesting thing, the difference between the, um, I, so there's a whole philosophical thing about for-profit versus not-for-profit, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, there's the, um, you know, for-profit company, theoretically it's, its goal is to return, uh, increase returns for its shareholders. You know, there's a, there's a whole philosophical argument going on now about like, you know, do you include stakeholders as well as shareholders, but point is your, the goal is to maximize profit, right? If you maximize profit in a nonprofit situation, right? You're not meeting your mission right. or you are reducing your ability to meet your mission, Right. Whereas if you can reduce the profit, so let's say, you know, um, you're, you're a, um, a, a nonprofit and you're delivering a service to your community and um, you increase your net income from 3% to 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So you've increased it, you know, let's say it's a million dollar organization and you increase your net income uh, to 10%. So you've gone from 30,000 to a hundred thousand, mm -hmm. right? Well, there's $70,000 that you are now sitting in a bank that you could have used to hire people to deliver more services that meet your mission. Right. Okay? Right. So I'm not saying you don't want to rate increase revenue and I'm not saying you want to, you don't want to be more efficient, but what you do with that efficiency is a mission driven question. And the, 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 um, the benefit that is reaped by growing a, a nonprofit and making it more efficient is that you can deliver more on your mission than you could before. Right. So then the question becomes, what is the point of the net income? And it's very material from running the business standpoint. Right. And, um, you know, the, the conclusion that we came to in these organizations that I worked in was that it was there to fund capital equipment replacements for the things that you need to do to run the business so that you can expand the mission. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And if, if it's not doing that, then you can, you know, it doesn't need to sit in a bank. It needs to go back into the mission. You need to go hire more people, you know, develop more platforms to deliver more on the mission that you're trying to deliver on. Not right. to, it's not to raise salary. I mean, you want to pay market rates, right. For the people mm -hmm. that you employ. And, but then that's becoming, you know, part of labor. It's not net income. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But when you have that, just because just you grow your net income doesn't mean you keep it there. You right. use it to deliver more services. Right. Yeah, I think that, that profit and even revenue has become kind of this, this ugly word in the nonprofit space where, where it's like, well, we're no, not, profit. We're, not, we're not, you know, we're not supposed to be driving profits and revenues. And it's like, well, you know, if this fuels, this is exactly what you said. If this fuels your mission um, and enables you to buy more equipment so that you can work more efficiently or, or, you know, mm-hmm. do whatever, it, you know, then, then it's not a, it's not a dirty word. It's, it's a part of that. There's that a, you know, equation. I mean, it's a very, real rule that I came to believe, which is there's no money, no mission, right? right? You're not making money. You're not delivering on your mission. Right. So go figure out how to make more money because right. you know? then you can, you can be a better, you know, provider of the mission. Yeah. Um, you know, I look at, I'm very proud of the fact that MHCD grew from 25 million to over a hundred million. Right. We have quadrupled the number of people we can take care of. Right. Exactly. And it is a, and just, we all see the homeless when we drive around town, right? We're clearly not there yet. We've right. got a long way to go. Yeah. So, for sure. Um, you know, it's we. You know, it's something to be proud of. But we're not. We're not finished on that one. Right. Um, we got more work to do. But it's right. you know, it's, it would we wouldn't be able to do that if we weren't growing the business. Right. Well, so. yeah. You can you can certainly serve a lot more people with with that mm-hmm. kind of budget than with a, a yeah. quarter of that budget. So. Mm-hmm. That's great. So anyway, um, uh, oh, so so anyway, yeah. So I use those experiences to help me develop skill sets and experience and um, confidence to run my own business. And so now, now I'm now I'm building a business on my own for my you know for myself. Nice. So well, that's great. I love it. Yeah. So what are the things that you see nonprofits you know in in all of your experience and then as, as well as just kind of seeing the space, I'm, I'm sure you're still, you know, in touch with, with the space a bit. Do you see any commonalities in terms of thing, you know, missed opportunities or, or things that, that, that is pretty, pretty typical among nonprofits that they're missing? Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, I laugh because, um, it's a, uh, it's a, people that, that go into nonprofit are very driven by the mission mm-hmm. and they're not always grounded in the business fundamentals of what drives their business. And so they miss an opportunity. Um, they miss a lot of opportunities and um, we as a company, so I believe we're, you know, professional services firm, we're a marketing company. Um, and I believe that we um, have as a profession, have a responsibility back to our community in the same way that a law firm does or an accounting firm does, mm-hmm. you know, healthcare providers do in that um, they do a certain percentage of their work is thought it should be pro bono. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so we do pro bono work. I brought that ethic to our company and we will work with nonprofits uh, on a pro bono basis um, and uh, t- basically set up their digital marketing for them. You know, they have to apply to us. We have to approve it, um, you know, but, um, and we've done like a, uh, a, a cancer camp. Um, we've done um, a, uh, uh, it was like a community center. Um, we've done, I've done some consulting for like um, some, the, uh, youth education programs, um, variety of different situations. Um, and the interesting thing that we've learned, so we do, we're very data driven and we analyze what it costs to get a customer and then, um, how many customers can you get in a month and, um, you know, how much do you need to spend? What's that mean for, you know, marketing programs for, for a client. And, so for for-profit companies, you have a customer that comes to you and spends a certain amount of money and buys your product, buys your service. Right. Nonprofits, that's not what they want usually. They want volunteers and they want they want donors. Yes. So they're they're not buying a product, they're donating their money. Right. And so what we figured out was that with most nonprofits, you, you can trace what's the path in the same way that you have a buying journey with a for-profit company. Mm-hmm. You have a buying journey as a donor. Right. 
So what is that journey and how, what are the, what are the levers in there that are going to drive people to want to donate? Usually it becomes, usually it comes from volunteers, right? So Mm -hmm. you might need a hundred volunteers and 20% of them are going to turn into donors. And of those donors, um, you know, one in 5% of them might be, uh, you know, might get their, their uh, company to donate, right? Which is the big donor. That's the one you really want. Right. So how do you make it happen where, so then you realize that it's not about getting donors. It's about getting volunteers. Right. And then yep. doing continued marketing to get those volunteers to donate and then get those ones that donate to get their company to donate. Right. And it's similar. So it's, it's, it's basically, you know, lead generation yep. that you would do for a for-profit company to make them want to buy. And then once you get into the company and you've got a client, then it's account-based marketing, right? It's the same principles. It's the same methods, but instead of driving, you know, um, increased conversion rates and dollars per sale, yep. you're driving increased volu- you're, you're generating volunteers and driving uh, conversions from volunteers and donors and then donors into Corporate donors. Yeah, in the uh, in, in the for profit space, we talk a lot about value ladders and bringing someone in mm-hmm. and, and creating an exchange. Um, and and the earliest value exchange is really email for some. You know, if you're looking at inbound marketing or whatever else, you're you're mm-hmm. exchanging an email for some benefit or some value, and then you mm-hmm. hooch them up that ladder through. You know, here's a here's a seven dollar uh, ebook, or mm-hmm. here's a and then yeah. and then you go to a fifty dollar you know webinar, and then you go to you know, something bigger and you're basically just kind of ooching people up. And I love the idea of bringing back and really looking at those key metrics that drive this final thing and, and mm-hmm. saying, you know, if, if, if one in a hundred are going to become corporate donors, then, you know, so we need a hundred uh, donors. And, and if a thousand, um, you know, if it takes a thousand volunteers to get a hundred donors, then let's go get a thousand volunteers. And you just, right. and then you figure that cycle out and you repeat, repeat it. I think that's just really valuable um, to, to take that perspective and, and twist it to that nonprofit space. I think that's, that's really, really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the great part about it is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You right. just apply what you already do. You're just looking for um, the measure of success or the goal completion that you might be looking for, you know, that we talk about in digital marketing, like mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not measured in a purchase. It's measured in a sign up for volunteering. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's great. I love that. Are there any other pieces of, of, um, you know, things that you guys do? So I know you guys do a lot more SEO work and, and, um, pay-per-click work. And I know that there's some, some things like Google grants and things like that, that nonprofits can take advantage of. Yes. What's your, what's your, take on that or, or recommendations for, for nonprofits who are seeking to, to kind of dip into that, to that it's, I guess it's not necessarily money per se, but it's, it's opportunity. It's, no, it's real money. Yeah. They, 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 you know, there's a certain amount of money that they'll allow. Now you, um, the cost per click can't be above like $2 or something like that. I forget what okay. it is, but, um, you know, they, um, uh, so that you can't, you know, be doing nonprofits and getting like a hundred dollars a click for free. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, um, uh, what I, you know, so a nonprofit should be looking at how can they do organic search? How can they do paid search? Mm-hmm. How can they do programmatic advertising to drive awareness um, of their services, what they provide to, to people? Um, you know, the, so the things that we do, right, we drive lead generation for our clients through uh, inbound marketing. So paid search and organic search. Um, we drive, uh, brand awareness and preference through programmatic advertising. Um, we'll drive thought leadership, you know, through content marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, we drive conversion rate optimization through variety of different tools, you know, but things like email lead nurturing and stuff like that. Right. Um, and so, uh, when you look at the solutions that a company is looking for in terms of driving awareness, driving preference, driving selection, driving loyalty, right? And same sort of marketing stuff. Mm-hmm. There's tools in the digital realm of options um, that would apply for all of those. And nonprofits should be applying them in the same way 
that for-profit companies are. They just need to think about them a little bit differently. Right. Um, the, um, you know, what I tell people, and this is hard for, it's hard for nonprofits to get their heads around, or sorry, for for-profit companies right. to get their heads around. <laughs> right. It's really hard for nonprofits to get their heads around. And that is what percentage of revenue should they spend on this? Right. On these efforts, right? Conservatively, I would say 3%. Okay. Right. So for a million bucks in revenue, you should spend $30,000. For 2 million, you should be spending 60. That's conservative. Right. Right. Aggressive consumer products companies will spend 15 to 20%. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, they should ideally be spending more like five, six, seven, eight percent, mm-hmm. right? You can really change the game. If you figure out what it's going to cost to get that donor, right? Then you can figure out how much money to spend and what, you know, what's the return going to be for that, mm-hmm. for that donor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but you, but you need to do that math first and you have to get your head around that you need to spend differently to, to make, to, to grow the, the nonprofit. Absolutely. Right? To grow their donations. Yeah, I feel, so, I feel like particularly in this, yeah, in this in this day and age, you know, this year, you know, we've talked to a lot of people who've who've had some real problems with their revenue ch- changing, and their mm-hmm. the instinct is to just to, is to just stop and just pull everything yeah. back. And and in actuality, it's like no, you you at least need to keep going. And um, uh-huh. you know, and well, you number, can't cut your way to help. Yeah, that that number is going to be smaller, but as a per- percentage of your revenue, you need to need to keep mm-hmm. your foot on the gas. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know, it's, it's part of the, I mean, a, a, um, a business, an organization is a, um, uh, is a system, right? Mm-hmm. The same way that human, like, a, like a human body is a system, you know? And, um, uh, and if you stop the marketing component, the lead generation, the revenue, um, growth part of it, well, other things are going to suffer down the road. Um, mm-hmm. and so can't stop doing that. You have to be, you know, prudent and, sure. you know, uh, yeah. responsible, but, uh, you don't, like I said, you don't cut your way to health. Um, and a lot of people struggle with the amount that they should spend. They, they, they underestimate significantly how much they should be spending on marketing. And, um, you know, there's, the, they just, they have, they have to think about it differently. And, you know, I've had conversations with some nonprofits in town that um, several million dollars in revenue, and it just blows my mind how little they will spend on marketing, even mm-hmm. when you can demonstrate how it's going to help them expand their mission. Mm-hmm. They can't, you can put it in front of them, show them the pathway, and they still can't get their heads around it, you know, because it's, it's, it's a different way of doing business. And, you know, changing behavior is is nearly impossible. You know, you people have to really want to change it. And, um, uh, and so it, it can be really hard, you know, for people to get their, to he- get their heads around it and, and do it differently. But that to me is a, a big um, difference is that getting them to think differently about how much they would actually spend on marketing um, is, you know, is a big deal. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, I think there's a there, there's a a component that comes in with a lot of nonprofits where it's there's this guilt feeling in terms of well if I'm spending money on this then it's taking away from that and yep and no and, that's exactly what it is yeah. they will face they will face criticism in their own organization I'm spending a hundred thousand dollars more on marketing well that's a hundred thousand dollars I could be spending on the mission and the thing is is that the the marketing person in the nonprofit has to be able to show them that says, if I spend a hundred thousand here, mm-hmm. right, I'm going to get 1.5 million over here. And mm-hmm. at our gross margin, that means we can do this much more mission. Right. So instead yeah. of a hundred thousand more, I'm now providing with $500,000 more. Mission, yeah, yeah right? exactly. That's, that is the case that the marketing people, and they don't know how to do it. Well, I think the first thing like I've, had is- to, I've had to solve this for people. Yeah. And it, that's the problem is that, you know, they come in and their idea of marketing is pamphlets, right? Yep. You know, brochures, yep. nothing. I'm not saying marketing communications isn't important. It's a tool though, in the right. arsenal of a marketer. Right. And, um, it's only one tool. Right. And it's not the way that the, the, 
you know, the head marketer should be thinking, the head marketer should be thinking, how am I expanding the mission? Okay, well, if I'm going to expand the mission, I got to get this many more donors. If I'm getting this many more donors. How many, how, you know, what gets them into that funnel? Yep. They have a sales funnel the same way that a for-profit company does. It's just named differently. Yes. Well, it's funny language. You, I'm, that's a great a great segue to what I was going to say just a second ago is that it's, it, there's a lot of language that comes into play here. And one of the things that we've been trying to do is stop talking about spends and start talking about investments. Mm-hmm. And essentially yes. you're investing a hundred thousand dollars in, in your marketing. And mm-hmm. so it just yes. automatically flips a switch up there mm-hmm. that it's like, well, okay, well an investment I can handle because I'm expecting this to, to and create it, something. Right. And to your, to your point, right. It's not profit. It's mission expansion. Yes, exactly. Yep. Right. Oh, mission expansion. That sounds much more palatable. Yeah. We're going to invest in mission expansion. Then, then profit. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So that being said, I will also say that, you know, MHCD, um, uh, you know, when, when, um, and the same with rapids, you know, when I, um, one of the things I learned in this was your leadership, if you want really good leadership, you have to pay above market rates. Mm-hmm. You don't get great leaders on the cheap. Right. But if you pay above market rates, your return on investment on a, on a person who is worth this being, you know, being paid in the 75th percentile for what they do is yep. two to one. The return on investment for somebody from the 50th percentile is one to one. And the return on investment for somebody in the 25th percentile is like, one to two, you're losing money on that person. So you don't right. go get your CEO and pay them at the 25th percentile. You get the one that you can get at the 75th percentile because they're going to return a huge amount for you. You're going to pay them more. You're going to bonus them. You're going to incent them more. Right. But you know what they're going to do? They're going to they're going to expand your business. Right. And I have proven that over and over again in the organizations that I've been with. Um, the CEOs and the executive directors of the places that I've been have been very well compensated. Right. Well, it comes Not back down to that. Though. It comes back down to that language too. And it's, you know, that's another investment. It's not an expense. Um, well, they're also frankly held accountable to performance, right? They are, they are, they are, they are held accountable for performance from a strategic plan perspective. They have to achieve the goals of the strategic plan. They also have to achieve the goals for revenue and net income. Right. And if they don't, they don't get a bonus and they also lose their job. Right. <laughs> you know, right. eventually. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one thing to pay somebody. It's another thing to hold them accountable. Right. And if you, if they're being, you know, it's not like, it's not like banks, right. Where, um, they threw the economy in 2008, you know, under the bus, their companies lost and they got big bonuses. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. It's making it so you can expand your mission many times over and you get bonused. Right. You deserve it. You did a great job. Yeah. So love it. Anyway, (laughs) that's fantastic. Any other things that you see from a, from, from that perspective that nonprofits should be, you know, are there any, you comfortable with any wins? Uh, Yeah. Well, either get comfort with or, or, or just things that you just see consistently, they're just not doing. And it's like, just do this thing and that'll help expand that mission. Um, those are my learnings, you know. Yeah. I didn't know this going in. I learned these things right over time. Um, you know, but um I do think that uh in general, nonprofits can can perform a lot better than they already are. And um and so there's usually I haven't yet to walk into one where I'm like, oh this is doing great. <laughs> right. You know, there's usually, and that's, that's true in a lot of organizations. I don't uh, say like for-profit companies are all run well. They're certainly oh, not. No, no. Um, I look at my, you know, my own company can be, we can always, improve. we can always raise the bar on ourselves. Right. Um, but um, one of the, uh, at least to me in the nonprofit space is that um, they are hindered by um, fear of looking greedy. Mm-hmm. And getting over that and realizing that by thinking not in a greedy way, but in a, you know, um, a way of growing the business, growing what it can do and growing the, um, the mission that it can provide. Um, you have to think 
more aggressively. You have to think um, more opportunistically, you know, ways that in a for-profit situation, you would make a lot more money. Here, you just provide a lot more mission. Right. Love it. I think it's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. Um, I thought I turned off my... Uh my notices, but one just, one just went off on my ear, ear holes. So, yay. Um, so we're about out of time here. And one of the things I like to close with is, Mm -hmm. is an action. I I feel like there's too many podcasts and too much stuff out there. There's too much talk and not enough doing. And so, yeah, yeah. So what, what would you want um, uh, the listeners to take away and, and just go do um, in order to, you know, to, to have a better day or improve their lives, or, you know, it could be anything if, you know, um, it could be go, go, go kick a soccer ball around, but you know, what, what would that action be that you'd like people to do? You know, it's funny. I thought about this and I wasn't coming up. I had all kinds of answers. I didn't like any of them. You told me about this beforehand. Um, but you know what I would say? And it literally just popped into my head. I would tell people to pay it forward. I think that's great. I would, I would ask them to go through their life and think about how do I pay it forward? So, you know, I look at it from the standpoint of like our company, right? Providing pro bono services to nonprofits so that they can better, you know, that's a way of paying it forward. Um, I just think when you approach life that way, you know, you don't look at it, what can I get from this, but what can I do for that other person? it'll be a very different, it would be a very different world. And I think we're all kind of tired of the energy that we all experience in this world, no matter what perspective we come from. Right. Right. But how can I pay it forward? Well, and, I love it. And most challenging, would be how can I pay for forward for somebody that doesn't agree with the way I look at life? <laughs> that's all. That's also true. I, I think that we, we need to, to come together and we all have common common goals. It's, a lot of times, it's just how we get there. And and uh, I love mm-hmm. the idea of, of paying it forward to whomever you you come across. I think that's a, a really great way to way to think about things. So, Dan, so, tell uh, tell us exactly how to find you, or the best way to find you uh, for oh. people who've listened to the show and would like to get in touch. Yeah. So, um, our website is um, www dot c1 partners.com um, our phone number is 303-501-1821 um, or you could shoot an, an email to info at uh, c1-partners.com sounds um, great so those would be three ways you can connect with me on linkedin um you'll find me dan smink you know so perfect um so yeah thanks for I'd be happy to talk about yeah, I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm oh. sorry we are not neighbors any longer. I miss <laughs> coffee and, you know, hanging out. Absolutely. So, well, we, maybe we again can, soon. I hope so. I hope so. And thank you again for being on the show. And, and we'll talk to you real soon. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. There you have it. Another episode of Relish to This, the nonprofit marketing podcast. If you want to continue the conversation and see how we can unearth some gold for your organization, head over to relishstudio.com slash podcast to sign up to be a guest on the show. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Relish This.